Well, I, um, I, I wore the coat just so you saw that I did get dressed up, but it's a little warm, so uh, forgive me. And also, um, I find it somewhat ironic that I have this water right here when there's absolutely no food or drink permitted in this sanctuary. Uh, but that's pretty good. Um, the, the law commands what it cannot produce. Uh, but um, it's, great, it's great to be here with you all. Um, I'm sorry I was late. I was caught in our, the hurricane. We were flying through Charlotte, and they cut our, um, our flight uh, just totally off. And so we've just arrived. Uh, about two hours ago, and so it's great to be here with you. Dave, thanks for the invitation. I, um, you know, it's funny, when I was coming to Oklahoma, it's the first time uh, I'd ever been, but I can't get this image out of my head because as a child, the only thing I knew about Oklahoma was is it was there that the corn grew as high as the elephant's eye. You know, you know this. That was just about as funny as you thought, Liza. <laughs> there we go. Um, but... It really was quite a disturbing thought for a young child to see these elephant and corn sort of juxtaposed together, and it was very confusing. Now, as I'm raising my own children, I'm more careful with the imagery that I give them um, <laughs> because there was some sleepless nights. Um, and also, I was thankful Dave uh, uh, was, sent me a rough-cut audio of Dr. Paulson's lecture from this morning, which was amazing. And I have to just say, by point of personal privilege, it was almost eight years ago now that I had the privilege of uh, meeting and hearing Dr. Paulson for the first time at the Mocking, third Mark Mockingbird Conference, and it was nothing less than life-changing for me. And in, in no small way, set me on a trajectory, which I'm still on today. And so I was so thankful to hear about the, the tracks. I love this new idea, the, the tracks. And I was thinking about this uh, as I was coming from the, the airport, because I was in the airport, and I have this new beautiful little baby um, who's four months old, and I'm you know, dressed for coming to this conference, and I'm carrying this baby, and I've got my, my, uh, my luggage, and I have had, I'm on the right track right here. Like, I'm on the right track, and people are smiling at me, and I'm very self-congratulatory, and I'm like, yes. I have it all together. I do. <laughs> like, I, I am the working husband, wife. You know, my wife is very lucky. I'm, I'm, you know, clearly handsome and successful in all the things that you want to be. Um, and they kept smiling at me and sort of nodding, and I'm like, yes, yes. And it turns out, <laughs> turns out that I had an entire sort of ribbon of baby poop coming right down <laughs> the side of my shirt, down to my knee, and um, that's what they were looking at. <laughs> so... Uh, that was a little bit of my Martha in a Merry World situation there. Um, but uh, so here we are today. Uh, it's a great honor. And did you know, you may not know um, because you're here, but today, October 12th, is International Free Thought Day. Did you know this? It is. It's the day where people of all, um, all free thinkers come together and unite. Um, from the website <laughs> Secular Seasons, this is how you're supposed to celebrate Free Thought Day. Free Thought Coming Out Day, they write, is an annual day of celebration which gives those free thinkers who have been unable to proudly declare themselves a platform from which to do so. Held on October 12th, newly declared free thinkers can gain strength and support from fellow open free thinkers and from other October free thought holidays such as International Free Thought Month and Separation of Church and State Day. Um, I don't know why you're here with such festivities going on elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I was thinking about that as I was coming and thinking about this conference in particular, thinking about this, and also the rise, and you may have seen this, uh, there was an article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago called uh, uh, Wiccan, uh, the, the rise of Wicca in the Me Too movement, and sort of chronicling the, 
the sort of rise in interest, particularly among the quote-unquote millennials in what's now understood to be neo-paganism, I mean Wiccan and, and sort of uh, witchcraft and these sorts of sort of we would say uh, world religions or esoteric spiritualities. And I was thinking that these two sides of the same coin are uh, in part a result of the failure of the church to provide a message that actually seems to connect with where people actually live. You know, what drives you to be a free thinker when you grew up in sort of a, you know, what you would, you know, they always come up to me and they say, well, look, I grew up Catholic, and all that means is they're now the head of their local free thought organization, you know, or something, and I'm like, look, I understand what you're saying. Is it something deep inside of you was not touched or spoken to or identified with in the church that you were sort of given to go to as a young person, and now you are on a search for something else? And whether this looks like free thought or paganism, the point is, what Mockingbird has been able to do and continue to do by God's grace is actually give a voice to the things that are of interest to human beings, whether inside the church or out, and finding some purchase. Not, it's not entirely a, uh, you know, it's not, there's, no, there's no surefire way to open people's eyes and unstop their ears, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, there are ways to remove... Um, uh, barrels from fields and till ground and prepare people with, for, for an expectation that they're going to hear something that actually makes sense of their lives. And that's what we're doing here. And that's why when we come to this, this um, talk, this, this, uh, this uh, conference, the grace in an age of distraction, and in particular my uh, talk, the distraction of our lives, well, when we talk about distraction, we're talking about one of those very fundamental things that seem to uh, occupy uh, the, well, the, the time, free time or otherwise, of, of uh, human people, that we are people who are not, the question is not whether we are distracted, but it's the only question or the ways in which each subsequent generation finds itself new ways of becoming preoccupied with something other than the people they are. This is like bread and circuses, and there's nothing new. I mean, gladiator fights are nothing new than, um, uh, you know, who knows what the protests surrounding gladiator fights or the protests surrounding uh, NFL games. Like, who knows what they were? But the point is, is that there was something going on whereby people would rather be distracted by something than actually come to grips with who they are as sort of the depths of their, um, the quiet of their own souls in the dark of night. And this is why when we come to this question, we seem to agree that we and everyone we know, and particularly in our modern world, this is where we live, I mean, there's no use pretending we're in some other time, that everyone is distracted, and this is what we talk about. I mean, everyone puts these dystopic um, uh, cartoons up on Facebook all the time, which is a great irony about how all we do is look at our phones, and then you're like, this is a weird sort of M.C. Escher auto uh, self-creation thing, like I would not be able to see this were I not on Facebook, and yet I'm on Facebook watching how Facebook is destroying my life, and Lord have mercy. <laughs> um, but we, we agree with that, and so when we find ourselves, this is sort of a, an aphorism, theological axiom, which I, would, which I um, would, would, would defend. When we find a problem that is universal in scope and seems to affect people regardless of their socioeconomic level, gender, um, nationality, wherever they are, then we're not talking about a sociological problem, we're talking about a theological problem. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a problem that is about God. And that means not even just God professed, it could simply be the negation of God. 
You know, atheists have just as big of a theological problem as Christians. It's just their problem is the negation of God. And then, and, uh, and it's, you know, so their theology, as it were, takes a different shape, but it nevertheless is, in fact, a question of theology. And so that's why when it comes to distraction, if you're a theologian, and particularly a Christian theologian, and we have uh, this argument, which is uh, grounded in the person and work of Christ himself, that God has revealed himself to the world, well then, what he's revealed should in fact be both a diagnostic of what ails us, but then also something of a solution, however imperfect we may find it. I mean, if, uh, one of my subjects of my uh, PhD dissertation, a man named Gerhard Eberling, said this wonderful thing. He was talking about the critique that Marx gives to Christians, or the Marxists, that somehow it was the opiate of the masses. You've heard this, right? This is your nephew that goes off to college and takes one anthropology class and comes home at Thanksgiving and makes fun of you for being a Christian, you know, because, um, uh, and then you suddenly, you, you totally, well, anyway, that's just, that's what happens. And, um, uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, and yeah, so we had at my old church and my new church, and we have sort of preparation for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, that's sort of a, uh, it's like apologetics 101, like don't be afraid, it's going to be okay. Um, but uh, so Abling said, you know, we shouldn't be too quick to write off this idea that it's an opiate for the masses, meaning it's something that actually helps the masses uh, live, because if God came down and offered a solution that actually wasn't universally needed, well, then we should look for another God. And this is what we're talking about. Like, if what we're talking about is not something that actually addresses you, where you are, regardless of what your, your sort of idea of yourself is, or your Facebook profile has been curated to show, regardless of who your father told you you were, the person you are at this moment, if we, what we're talking about doesn't speak to you, well, then we should go looking for something else. And so that's what we're talking about today. So I've been thinking a lot about this, about the relationship between self-justification and distraction, about, um, about sort of self-creation and distraction. And while they're not exactly the same thing, the point of this talk, the next, the, the meat of it coming out, is gonna be this, is that we use distractions for our inability to self-justify. This is what we do. Like, we use the distractions of our lives because otherwise we are left with who we are, and who we are is something that ultimately is impossible to justify on its own merits. This is what, we, this is what we're talking about. Um, and so that's where we're going. <laughs> so uh, the impetus for this talk came, and I wanted it to be the title, although it was too esoteric. Uh, it was from Fight Club. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's this amazing Chuck Palahniuk movie, and it happened to hit... Or, or come out basically at the same time that my frontal cortex developed, I guess, because I went from sort of this Tom Bombadil character, you know, thoughtless and, and carefree and all the world's, uh, 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 you know, sort of a sunshine and lollipops to this brooding sort of existential philosopher and then watched Fight Club, and I've never recovered from this. Uh, if you don't know the movie, it's basically an argument that says that uh, the modern world has essentially taken and sanitized all of our existence so that the only out outlet for this group of men in particular, although women joined, was to start beating themselves up so that they could feel something true and real in the world. It's pretty heavy, right? So I, I kind of could recommend it. I'm not preaching, so I guess I could say it's not the worst movie you've ever seen, but it's not a date movie. It's not a date movie. Um, uh, so there's this, there was this line in there, though, which was amazing. So you got this main character, and it's this group of men not unlike we see today, you know, this sort of lost and aimless men in particular, although it's not just men, 
but um, you know, who've had their jobs taken away from them by machines and they find themselves in a cubicle and they don't sweat anymore except in spandex and in air-conditioned places and they don't hunt and they're just these lost people. And he's surrounded by these, these, these men and he says, we are the uh, middle generation. We didn't have a great war and we didn't have a great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war and our great depression is our lives. And I remember hearing that and I was sitting there, you know, I had been taught to be all these things, and I was preparing to go into this, you know, the, the Ikea world that they were railing against, and I said, well, goodness gracious, that's, that's pretty, it's hitting me in a way that I wasn't prepared for, and it's certain still resonating with me. And so when I was thinking about a, a grace in an age of distraction, in particular my talk, that, um, the life um, in distraction, I couldn't help but get that line in it, that our great battle, is a th- our great war is a theological war, and our great distraction is our lives. That's why it just sort of popped up, because the idea that we are constantly evading the truth about who we are, and in constantly trying to erect, as it were, uh, facades and or uh, compensation mechanisms to sort of defend and justify ourselves against accusation seems to be another word for distraction. It seems to be. And so um, that's where uh, we find ourselves. This what is what the Saint, what Saint Paul came to so profoundly realize is that it's that we are justified by faith, and the question is not whether that's true. It's simply what the faith is placed in, or from which the faith is derived, however you want to say it. Because if our faith is ultimately justified in ourselves, well, then we are going to need to spend a lot of time convincing ourselves and others that that faith is justifiable. And this is the rat race, the the, um, the, the, sort of the wheel, and ultimately the cross that people are thrown upon. Like a matador with a bull, we think we can distract our hearts from our deepest problems. We think we can um, compensate. We think we can um, justify. We think we can explain away. We think we can medicate. We think we can have enough therapy or enough um, sort of, uh, uh, sort of, Uh, you know, we can be victimized enough so that what we really are deep down is not what is actually being judged before the light of day. And yet, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Although there's a lot of money to be made in it, an awful lot, um, and will continue to. And we see this because at the deepest part of who we are lies the realities, universally, of guilt, fear, and shame. And so we see this that our Instagram and Twitter followers are simply modern iterations of our uh, ability to fight these great pillars that have marked the human person, as the Bible reveals to us, ever since the great severing of our relationship to God himself. And once what was, once what once was a relationship and a reality of, um, based in a promise that was secured outside of us, which then produced a measure of peace and harmony and life became the very thing that then drove us in search of something we could then um, ultimately find, um, where we would be in a, a, a lifelong search for something we would never be able to find. Um, so, but don't take my word for it. Uh, don't take my word for it. Let's turn to Genesis, and I'll show you how this, how this works. Um, because I forgot this part here, because the, what I was argue is that the distractions of our lives are not simply the um, sort of hobbies. You know, I have a lot of 
things that I like to do. Uh, I went through a big Fortnite phase a couple of months ago, which I'm not proud of, but it was pretty cool. Um, and then I just started getting schooled, like left and right. I was like, I'm tired of this. And now I've picked up the banjo. So there we go. These are, uh, but these are not the distractions we're talking about. The distractions that we're talking about that the Bible lays at the foundational roots of our human identity are the great questions. Our ethnicity, our gender, um, or lack thereof, if that's your thing, or our socioeconomic status, our, our identities. These are the things which we carefully curate and become the distraction that we think we can control that takes our eyes off of who we actually are. This is where we're going. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Um, you've heard this account before. I won't read the entire thing, but just the very end of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2. He describes this. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, this was sort of the, this is the good part. This is the happy you know, part of the Bible. And the rest of it is God's um, sort of diagnostic and then rescue mission and ultimately his, his planned promise for redemption. Um, but that was the description given. They were naked both naked, and we're not ashamed. And so then, in the next chapter, we have sin entering the world, which is, has been pointed out by many, is often described as a fall, but that's somewhat incorrect um, for a variety of reasons we could talk about uh, later, but it's much more should be seen as a reach, because what you had as two people who had been created in the image of God in relation to uh, take care of the world and be fruitful and multiply and be co-creators with God, these people in their proper relation to God were passive, were people who were the recipients of a gift, people who had been given outside of themselves their identities. Well, then they were given the opportunity to be like God, to actually sort of transcend their position with him and become something um, that, that was very um, apparently uh, something that people really wanted to be um, have more power than they had already, to have more control over their lives than they wanted. And so they, and we, and there were our forerunners, decided that their positions before God were insufficient and so reached up to be like God. Their eyes were open and they saw what? That they were naked. Now that's not insignificant because all of a sudden the self-realization that came about was not of something ancillary to them, but their actual reality. And so it says in, in chapter 3, it says the Lord God was walking through, where do I have this, um, uh, that, um, that he was walking into the garden uh, at the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And so you see, in this instance, we have this reversal of the creator-creature distinction so that we have this, this creature who was blissfully unaware because of the relationship to his loving creator of his inadequacies or perhaps of, of himself at all becoming, because of this breakdown, this incredibly self-conscious, self-absorbed, naked, ashamed, and afraid person. And this then marked the human person from that day till the present. This is why the distractions are so prevalent, because the need to get out of this position of hiding, cowering behind a tree is so great and yet so fruitless and futile. Paul, the apostle, picks up on this in Romans chapter 1. He says that, um, that the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and nationalities and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses and other people and political rulers and anything and everything that to which our sacrifice might bring the, the hoped-for salvation. This was the reality of the wrath of God unleashed upon the world. And then what does Paul say? Therefore, God gave them up. And that's a powerful thing to observe, is that God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of uh, their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so we see this root of our problem lies precisely at the point where the wrath of God is seen most clearly in that we are beset with a disease, the cure for which we uh, have no hope of attaining. And yet the sum total of our lives are spent in search, in service of that very thing. This is where God, uh, I mean, this is what it talks about when he gave them up, that we are now in a world of self-creation and of self-deification and of self, self-actualization. You know, what Heidegger calls Gewürfenheit. We've been thrown into this world to hew meaning and purpose out of it on our own, come what may. And we, we, we search for it and we fight for it and we sacrifice any and everything we can, including ourselves, to make it happen. We sacrifice families. How many families have been sacrificed on the altar of success? Because one more dollar, one more, one more deal, and then perhaps I'll have this voice go away. Or how many, how many families have been altered, sacrificed on the altar of, of sex, of, of money, of power? How many friendships? How many nations? How many, how many uh, sort of generations have been wounded by this very sacrifice? And this Sacrifice comes because we are driven by the voice all the way from the garden, detached from the identity of this God who speaks. Because what did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? Where are you? And who told you you were naked? Very shortly after that in in Cain, when Cain kills Abel, this voice from heaven comes down and says, what have you done? And these voices which echo and reverberate in the hearts and the souls of each and every human created in the image of this God who speaks, nevertheless, outside of the knowledge of who he is, find them to be the very thing that drive them to the edge of the world. I mean, New Zealand is full of people who's the voice of what have you done is not enough, not enough, and, you know, pass the bong or whatever, you know. Uh, I mean, people run from, from uh, where are you, you know, I'm tired of hearing this. People are, are driven into the world by these very questions. Who told you you were naked? What have you done? What, where are you? And 
they search for answers to this blindly, hearing the faceless and uh, um, sort of nameless echo from the universe, heaven, fate. I mean, listen to your friends talk about the universe. And like Fight Club, the question you have to come back to your friends is like, you may start to wonder whether the universe actually likes you at all. That really needs to be a question to some of your friends. You know, it's always happy when the universe gives you a new, a new um, you know, you win the lottery or something, although it's a, it's a double-edged sword, it seems. But, but this is the question that will haunt people outside of a preacher. We'll get to that. Because the question, these default questions, who told you you weren't good enough? Who told you you weren't smart enough? Who told you, Christine Aguilera, that you weren't beautiful enough? You know, I'm beautiful no matter what they say. It's like, well... I don't know. It's okay. You know, sure. Um, but who told you you weren't worth something? Who told you these things? Now, the temptation at this point is to just negate these feelings of judgments. It's just say, you know, they're there, it's fine. And the problem is, as often has been tried and as tempting as it is, the problem with all of these attempts to remove these burdens on us to prove, create, to be something we're not, the, 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 the problem with this comes down to the fact that we are naked. And we are, we are naked. And we are guilty and ashamed. And we do hide. That's the problem, is that you're not as beautiful as you think you are. <laughs> no matter what they say, um, you, you, you have done things and undone things. You have said things. You have made mistakes. You have not been you have not sacrificed everything at all times for the sake of your children. You know, I used to think, I used to think that when I had kids, because it took us a little while to have them, that then it would be the easiest thing in the world to just sacrifice everything, the drop of a hat for them. Well, that is not true. <laughs> that's not way not to get into it, but I mean, and it, it's not. I mean, if you're married, you know that that's the first thing you learn. That's why I talk to my pre-marriage people. It's like, you have to get, first comes love, then comes a marriage, then comes a baby, not in some sort of, you know, mechanistic sort of voodoo sense, but because marriage will bring you to your knees, um, and then you get thrown a baby. <laughs> it can't work the other way. And the point is that we are living lives of naked people, just like Adam, just like Eve. And we are these people for whom God has given us over, I mean, outside of a preacher, as we'll talk about. And we find the distractions of our lives simply a litany of, it's not as bad as we really think it is. Surely I'm, I'm better than so-and-so. It could be worse. And that lasts just about as long as it takes to say. And this is the problem. This is the problem with the world that we all face. This is what drives people to church, and then, depending on their experience, drives them to free thought <laughs> celebrations or, or Wicca or, or yoga or, or um, that's not a thing, but I mean, the, the, whatever the case is, people are looking for something to deflect and defend and distract themselves from who they are. And so this is the reality we find ourselves in, is that we're in chains. Like, this is the default position of the human person, is that we are, we are not free. We are chained to our realities of who we are, which then force us, not by our choice, but by necessity, to obfuscate and defend and pretend that we are something other than, than who we are. This is what we do. 
And it's very easy when things are going well to, to forget who you are, and it's harder when things aren't going well. Um, but the, the, the thing remains the same, is that there's always a trajectory or a track, as we were heard this morning, um, that seems to be the way to salvation. Well, see, this is where we take the turn here, uh, because G- Jesus came for, by his own admission, um, his own statement, the captives. This is the descriptors. And I talk to my congregation all the time, like, this is, you know, uh, the church growth strategy. Well, let's begin with Jesus and tell people who they are. Um, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says in Luke 4, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, and therefore proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So um, here's a banner, like, we all poor, captive, blind, and oppressed people are welcomed uh, on Sunday morning to come to our church. You know, it's not as, as catchy. Uh, it's not as catchy as, you know, Parenting 101 or, um, or uh, something of the, of, the, of the case. And yet, that's where people actually are. That's what people are, are actually dealing with. And we get this on good account because our Lord himself said that this is, in fact, the ministry to which he had been given, is release for these people, a release for the oppressed and the captive and the blind. And this would be the Lord's favor. And so we see that we have this bind of being naked in a world beset by sin, death, and the devil, finding ourselves uh, ashamed, afraid, and guilty, and in therefore then in constant search for something that will take our minds off, take our eyes and ears off of this persistent the need to defend and, and um, sort of articulate why it is that we are not the people that we some deep down find that we, we might actually think we are. And into this world, into this slavery, Jesus came to do something entirely different. Because instead of who told you you were naked, preachers in his name get to say, Despite your nakedness, you have now been clothed in Christ. And this is an entirely different thing than the things that you feel, the things done and left undone aren't as bad as you think. Because I don't know you, and the fact that you're not currently incarcerated uh, gives me some indication, although you could be on furlough for something terrible. I have no idea. Um, I, I really don't. I mean, you know, the fact that you are sitting next to a, someone who seems to be your happy spouse or not, you know, is, um, well, that's all I know, but I have no idea what's going on in your heart. You do, um, and that's why I tell my congregations all the time, like, we say, I don't know what you're confessing, and honestly, unless you really feel like you need to tell me, I don't care um, uh, to a certain extent, but that you have something, too, is what we're going to offer you, and that we have something then to offer you in return, i.e. the absolution of God's unmerited favor and grace towards you through Christ, when his behalf is, well, this is what we do. And so we see, we come to this age of distraction, which is really just a euphemism for life under the law. Uh, because it is setting up a demand to be righteous in and of ourselves, which is something that we can't attain and yet is ever present before us, which puts us on a trajectory of self-deification and then worship and sacrifice that all the things that by their nature are not God's, which ultimately will come back to get us. And so we find ourselves in that place, seeking and searching for 
for something else altogether, which is why God has given us the very thing that we would not go looking for, and yet turns out to be that which answers and satisfies our greatest longing, which is a preacher in whose mouth is given the words of Christ himself to you, whereby he says that my life for you, like you have now been secured by me for my sake and for my glory. I mean, hear the Apostle Paul for this. He talks about the law in Romans 3, I mean, Galatians 3. I won't read the whole passage, but he says, Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Then goes down, he says that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see this, the nakedness, which we were painfully aware of from the garden, which sent scatter, us scattering into the world, subsequently destroying family relationships and then city and town and nation and, and, and international relationships for generation after generation. This nakedness has now been addressed by Christ himself. And as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and therefore this great and amazing sort of clarion call sentence from Paul, there is there now, therefore, no Jew or Greek, no ethnicity, no slave, no free, no, no socioeconomic status, no male or female, no gender divisions, no distractions along these lines that are, that are equal, um, sort of equal with your identity now found in Christ. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you see how it sort of I mean, to say that it sort of works, it, it's a little too um, neatly, uh, would discount the uh, persistence of, of sin, death, and the devil in all of our lives, but that we have something to say to a universal need that God has given his own son as, um, as uh, sort of collateral for uh, and then into the mouths of preachers throughout the world to proclaim to those who have ears to hear that the promise of God given to Abraham, secured in Christ, now will clothe you, you, the naked, the angry, the scared, the afraid, the, the vindictive, the, the, the sinner, you, by faith alone, through this promise, can now be clothed and no longer afraid, no longer ashamed, no longer, no longer guilty because of him and the one who came to save you. Because these voices, where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? Become the voice of the Father of Jesus, who so loved the world that he sent his own Son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, would have everlasting life. You see, in conclusion, this is how we find hope amidst the distraction of our lives, not by reordering things or limiting screen time or something like that, <laughs> but by having the need for our constant distraction first identified and then having it come to an end, having it distinguished, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, crucified. Remember, he says that I, I, this sort of self, 
um, autonomous subject of the verb, of the sentence, I have been crucified. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's now the object of the, the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who gave himself and died for me. Well, this is our spiritual war amidst the great distraction of our lives. But to be sure, in our great hope, in our enduring song will rise that this victory in this war has been secured. Thanks be to God.